Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. You know, the, the markets don't sleep, so why should you? Never underestimate the ability of the markets to surprise you. This is perhaps no truer than in the world of bonds. It seems only a short while ago that there were warnings of an impending corporate bond collapse. No one is talking about that today. At the start of the year, my team's opinion was for the rise in the 10-year Treasury yield to 1.5%, an out-of-consensus view at the time, and yet, by March, the 10-year yield had surprised everyone, exceeding even our target by climbing to 1.74. Since then, instead of continuing its steepening, the yield curve has actually flattened on both the short and long end with the 10-year yield back below 1.5%. So with yields as low as they are, and central bank policy in uncharted waters, how does a bond manager navigate the world of bonds? Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at Manulife Investment Management. Joining me today, uh, we've got a, a whole panel of individuals, and this is going to be a fantastic recording. As always, we have my colleague, Kevin Headland, Senior Investment Strategist with my team. Also, we have two individuals from our strategic income team based in Boston. We have Chris Chapman, who is a portfolio manager, and Peter Azanaro, who is a global macro strategist on the team. Gentlemen, welcome to Investments Unplugged. Philip, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Ditto. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having us. It's a great pleasure to have you guys on. This is fantastic because I think it's very timely too, just given all the discussion that we've had in the marketplace over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's been going on all year about interest rates and inflation and what the Fed is going to do. But in particular, just in the last couple of weeks, and we're recording this towards the end of June here, with, with Powell's testimony, the recent statement, and then speeches by various uh, Fed members, which just is fueling the ongoing debate of whether inflation is transitory or persistent. We'll get that into that in a minute. But what I want to do, uh, because this is the first time that we've had you gentlemen on, we've had Dan on from the team, Chuck on from the team in the past. Uh, but let's just get a refresher. And Chris, maybe we'll start with you in terms of, talk to us about the, the philosophy and the objectives of the Manulife Strategic Income Fund. Sure. So you know, what we really are is essentially a go-anywhere global bond fund. And you know, for us, we think about the ability to go anywhere with the strategy. It's really across a, a few different parameters. You know, the, the first would be geographic. And so for us in this strategy, we have an opportunity set that, that really spans the entire globe across developed markets and also emerging markets. Uh, when we think about our ability to go anywhere, it also relates to the, the ability to look at all of the different sectors across the world. And so really all types of fixed income instruments are potential uh, opportunities for the portfolio. 
Uh, again, the ability to go anywhere we look at from a corporate issuance perspective, when we talk about corporate issuers and the, the, the capital structure of an issuance really just allows us to look at an issuer and, and go uh, into an opportunity ranging from their, their highest level senior secured debt. We can look at uh, unsecured debt. We can look at convertibles, preferreds. We can look at term loans. And, and then lastly, from a credit quality perspective, the overall strategy, we have to remain a weighted average of investment grade rating but we can look at individual opportunities from across the entire rating spectrum. So really that go anywhere ability, it really comes down to just flexibility. We always like to say the world is our oyster in terms of the opportunity set. However, it's really about focusing on risk adjusted return. You know, we often talk about ourselves as risk managers that, that sort of happen to manage a, a global bond fund. We, we always talk about four significant risks. Uh, undoubtedly, Dan and Chuck would have talked about these as well. Interest rate risk, credit risk, foreign exchange risk and liquidity risk. And so we, we take all of that and we put this into a, in a product we're really focusing on risk adjusted return, which what I mean by that is, you know, how much return do we generate relative to the level of risk that we took to generate that return. We think about this in the in the perspective of a, a volatility profile for the strategy, which would which average between about 4% to 8%. And you know, where that average comes from as far as you know what we've done with the product it, it it's in line with what you'd find for high quality global bond benchmarks so essentially we take all this flexibility all this ability to invest in all of the different areas of fixed income markets but we're trying to generate a portfolio return that's risk adjusted that is giving a volatility profile commensurate with a global bond benchmark something like the the, the global aggregate or the multiverse peter I'll, I'll bring you into the conversation because you know what what chris was talking about is look you're managing a global bond portfolio with all of the complications involved in that. So why don't you just give us a sense of, of the team structure? Like how, how are you set up to do that? It's a great question. So I, you know, I think when you look at us from a, from a, a bottom up and a top down perspective, really, you know, we're, we're, we're set up, you know, as, as Chappie mentioned, you know, with a global footprint in mind, you know, Chappie just came back from London. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. We've got Kisu Park in Asia. Dan, Janice, Tom Goggins, Chuck Tomes, and, and, and several other members of the team based in Boston, and I'm in Chicago. So, you know, we, we, are, we, are, we do have a global footprint. One of Dan's comments that he makes to us quite often is to, you know, the, our job, it's twofold. Risk managers always first and expect the unexpected. From the way that we view the strategy, uh, you know, it, it really makes sense to, to take a look at the entire portfolio 24 hours a day, six days a week. We, we collaborate endlessly as a strategy. You know, I, I would say that's one of the strengths of the team, uh, that our collaboration, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is, is second to none. We're always bouncing ideas off each other. Uh, I'll, I'll call Kisu Park at two in the morning. Uh, if I'm up and I'm, I'm looking at the market and something looks interesting, I, I will call him and collaborate with him and we'll either engage in, into that position or not. And I'll give you a couple of examples on, on sort of like what Dan means by expecting the unexpected. There are a couple of things that we're looking at pretty closely that are coming up. Uh, one is uh, Beijing's capital market uh, activism is becoming a bit of a concern for us. And the CPC's 100th anniversary celebration is July 1st. Uh, we do expect calm markets going into the event, but there's, there's a possibility that we're going to see some volatility after. So there may be a big de-risk after that event. So on a nightly basis, Keith and I talk. Uh, about what's going on in, in, in China, uh, because obviously it's, it's, it's a bigger level to pull. 
Uh, and uh, we're getting a, a better understanding of, of what may come and what may not come of that. But that's just one element. It, it, it all starts with the collaboration, Philip. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I'll just share an anecdote with you that my experience with the team is I was in Hong Kong. I can't remember how many years ago it was. I was actually sitting with Kisu and we were talking about what was going on. And it was probably about three in the afternoon Hong Kong time, which was about three or four in the morning Boston time. And the phone rings and there's Dan you know, heading up the team. Yeah, on the phone, and and all of a sudden, you know, we ended up having a conversation with him for about an hour, um, and I think that is just. You, I, I said to Kiso when he hung up the phone, I said, "Does that hop, happen often?" He goes, "More than you know." Um, so it is. You know, there's there's true evidence of this collaboration that you guys just don't sleep. I mean, with this, what it seems like it is, but. Uh, but that's the edge, right? That's the adding the value. It's just you know the, the markets don't sleep, so why should you? Yeah, Pete, you're you're talking about the uh, you know the gold footprint of the team, uh, but one of the advantages I think you guys have as well, uh, working for Manulife Investment Management, is the other global fixing them teams that you can tap into. The fact that we have uh, boots on the ground, so to say, in so many different countries to get that that um, you know on the ground presence, that that um, understanding of the landscape direct from those locations. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, Kev. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, again, it, it comes back to that collaboration. We, uh, you know, we sometimes we'll sit in on some of those credit meetings that they have over in Asia at, at 10, 11 o'clock at night just to get a better understanding of, of what's going on. I, I'd highlight some of the recent macro events like the presidential election uh, where we were up around the clock and, and we were collaborating with a lot of investment teams head up by Andre in Asia uh, to talk about you know how they were pivoting their strategy, uh, how the liquidity was looking, things of that nature. And, and you're absolutely right. Manulife Investment Management uh, is, is, is a big company and there's a lot of levers to pull and it really gives us a, an advantage or an edge as Philip mentioned earlier. Couldn't agree more. So Chris, the team sent you to London. Uh, first tough assignment, you know, that must have been an easy decision to make um, in terms of, yes, sure, I'll go to London for the team. But what? how did that change your view in terms of the global bond markets or what did you bring back now you're back in boston but you know the the years that you spent in london what did you walk away with in terms of uh, being a better portfolio manager being able to see the global capital markets landscape from a, a different perspective than just being based in north america based in boston to to be able to to step outside of that and just see how all of the things come together and you know how the market trades right you see in london you're in the crossover time from the end of the asia session you know obviously the the entirety of the london session and then the the back half of the london day is really the morning in the us i mean you really get a lot of bang for the buck in terms of what you're seeing happen so to be able to sort of watch that play out, you know, see what what happens starting out in Asia as it rolls through the the European markets, as the US starts to come in, and just to get to get to watch how the different time zones, you know, how they interact, what happens with the market, what's happening with the the sentiment, et cetera, gives you a really good perspective. You know, in the US, a lot of times you sort of just tend to come in and it's, you know, it's kind of it is what it is. The back half of the US day, the Asia session doesn't really start until a bit later, so it can get a little bit more quiet. So you really get a, a strong sense of the pulse of what's happening. And and again, that perspective, I think it's 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 eye-opening. Let's say you're based in the US looking at, at North America, let's say, you know, you can you you lose some of the nuance, right? If you're if you're on the ground in the UK, and I think this is the perfect example, this was Brexit, right? I got, I got there in mid mid 2015, mm. uh, came came back in October, 
uh, of 2020. So I was really there for, you know, effectively, you know, I guess you could argue Brexit still to some extent going on with the the current, you know, arguments that are still going on, but, you know, basically there for the entirety of that process and the, just the, the, the depth of, of the information you're getting there, the, the nuances of understanding the players involved, the individuals involved, what their motivations are, what their perspective is themselves. I think it just get, gave a, a lot better feel for that particular event. And so you come back to Boston with that experience knowing, okay, I have to reevaluate maybe my sources of information, um, you know, where I'm understanding or where I'm getting this information from to make sure that you're getting uh, as much of that as you can, as well-rounded a view as you can. Um, so I think, I think that's been one of the, one of the big uh, uh, attributes to, to come back from. So let's let's turn it to the current environment and the kind of raging debate has been inflation um, and because it's, it's going to have an impact on rates. It already has had an impact on the 10 year yield, 10 year yield that started the year was 91 basis points, 10 year treasury yield. That is uh, 91 basis points jumped to uh, 174 basis points by the end of the first quarter. It's it's moderated since then. You know whether that's tone of of the Fed or whether that's seasonality. You know it's up for debate. Um, but it, it continues to center around inflation and whether inflation is transitory or persistent. We're in the camp, and and please, you know you can you can take the other side if if you feel so. But we're in the camp that inflation is going to be more persistent than what the Fed may be giving it credit for. But let's define that, and, and we're saying, okay, we're, we do see higher inflation. We don't see runaway inflation. We don't see inflation like the early '80s. But if the last ten years averaged one point seven percent, are we going to be higher than that? Yes. Can we be higher than that by a full percentage point? I fully believe that. Where do you sit on inflation, and, and just give us your sense of the the environment, the rates environment, and where we're headed? over the course of the next, say, six to 12 months? It's almost like you have to define transitory because I think the market's take on that is probably shorter than what it will ultimately be. And I think therein lies the the market reaction function because, you know, we're not necessarily saying that, you know, years from now, inflation is still going to be very high. It doesn't have to be that high, to your point, Philip, of being higher than where it has been to be enough to to generate reaction from the Fed, from central banks globally, you know, within their own jurisdictions, I, I think there's going to be enough working its way through where inflation levels can can be a little bit more elevated than perhaps the market's expecting. We're, we're exiting this period now where the easy year-over-year comparisons uh, have been, you know, starting to work through. You know, the the low in terms of uh, inflation last year was was May of last year. So obviously now the year-over-year comps, they're starting to get a little bit different. I, I think there's going to be some level of inflation that's going to continue through. I, I look at, you know, you look at a lot of the anecdotal things, like a lot of the surveys that come out. You know, we look at things like just currently right now, massive labor demand relative to labor supply. You can see this in the JOLTS. You can see this in the ISM, the NFIB, through the PMIs, uh, the Beige Book, and the Fed. Um, so that that labor demand versus supply, I think, can can have wage pressures last a little bit longer. I think the the, the supply chain pressures that are well known, I think, that has a potential for those to last. Uh, the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business, you know, they do the Small Business Optimism Survey. I think it's telling their last survey the the percentage of of small business owners in the U.S. that were planning to raise their average selling prices over the coming three months 
is the highest that it's been since 1980 and only a couple of percentage points away from the all-time high of the series in 1979. So I'm not, you know, not saying we're going to see those types of inflation. Everybody knows what inflation was like back then. We're not saying we're going to see that, but I think it's telling that, you know, we've already seen some price pressures come through and there's still an interest and an, and a, and an expectation from business owners to continue to pass through some of these higher costs over the coming months. Absolutely agree with with everything uh, Chappie said. I, you know, I think if you look in, at inflation skeptics, they tend to say that it's all transitory due to base effects, supply chain disruption, labor shortages, et cetera. Uh, but that the underlying structural trends, mainly you know tech and demographics, remain deflationary. I, you know, we, medium term, we disagree with that. Um, we I, I agree with what Chappie said. I won't I won't go back into it. But at the end of the day, you know, we we do see a, we do think there's a trend developing there. Uh, I don't know when you're going to be calling for our, you know, where we see the 10-year closing out uh, at the end of the year, but we do think it's going to be, from an interest rate perspective, higher than where it is right now. Yeah, Peter, that's interesting. You, you mentioned that uh, you're, you're calling a 10-year. That was where I think we're going next. But before we get there, you know, one of the things that we've been starting to look at uh, in inflation, on CPI at least, is not just the year over year, but the month over month. And the month over month recently, you know, kind of eliminates that base effect uh, argument. Um, and what uh, Philip's done is, is done some work on if you annualize the month over month uh, CPI, it actually tracks fairly co- closely and is highly correlated to the year over year CPI. You know, so if we, we kind of forward look and you can almost predict or at least have an idea of where CPI ends up. The month over month so far, if we just go 0% month over month for the rest of the year, so that last six months of the year, we would get a CPI still in the 2.5% handle. To my argument, is not transitory. It's transitory off the high levels, um, but it's nowhere near where I think perhaps the market defines transitory is, um, like uh, Chris had mentioned. So if inflation is not transitory, if it's enduring, and enduring meaning above the 2% target uh, for the U.S. Federal Reserve, where does the 10-year treasury go from here? You know, it, It's kind of where we expect it to be by mid-year, around that 1.5% level. Most of it was front-loaded in the first quarter, but how does it get higher and how do we get off the sticking point and where do we end up for the last six months of this year? We think about ranges, you know, the, the, the treasury yields trading within ranges. I think what we've seen that's interesting more recently here, you know, post the, the Fed meeting that we just had in June, you know, it seems like we're kind of establishing a bottom at about 1.43%. And so we're looking at, okay, we'll probably see a range maybe between that 143, let's call it, to, you know, 165 area, 170 areas where we can range trade. Probably going to be a little bit sideways, you know, choppy within that range over the course of the summer because central banks have have, have kind of punted things into that September timeframe, both the Fed, but also the ECB. You know, the ECB expectations, you know, no, no tapering of PEP at that last meeting. They've kind of kicked the, the can into the, the September timeframe. So I think, We'll probably have a period where we trade a little bit through ranges, but the direction of travel, the trajectory from a bigger picture perspective, as as he said, is is it's going higher. You know, so we work our way through that range. Data will become increasingly important. You know, as we make our way through that. You know, by the Fed meeting in September, we'll, we should have three more inflation prints by that point, and so we will get a better picture of, of what's going on. Our take from a macro perspective, you know, we're still believers in the the global recovery, the global reopening trade. You know, our expectations will continue to get strong data that should put some upward pressure on that yield move. You know, once you break through that that range to the top side, as you get more data, as that story plays out, assuming that it does, you kind of open up another range. You can eventually get 
back to, to pre-COVID levels uh, on the U.S. 10s. You know, you start to see that that 2% area. You know, the timing on that, you know, you could be off a couple months or so, but I think that that direction of travel certainly is going to be higher. So with that in mind, I want to I want to just ask you this, because part of, I think, why, why the transitory versus persistent inflation debate is so important is that the risks are skewed. So as you mentioned it, that you know, Dan's talks a lot about risk management. One of the, my favorite quotes of his is, we cannot predict risk. All we can do is manage it. As I look at it, and, and you know, if, if you disagree, again, jump in, uh, share your expertise here. But when I look at it saying, if you're in the transitory camp and you're wrong, it could cost you. Like It, it could really cost you. Uh, but if you're in the persistent camp and you're wrong, it's probably not going to cost you a lot. Right. So it seems the risks are skewed that, you know, if if you are on one side and you're wrong, it's going to cost you a lot more than if you're on the other side that you're wrong. You know, do you agree with that, that, you know, once the risks are greater on one side of being wrong versus the other and then tell us, okay, so what are you guys doing in the portfolio today to mitigate the risks that you see? over the near term. Basically what you're defining, and, and, and as you know, Philip, Dan and I come from a, a, a trading background. Uh, you're, what you just defined is, is what we describe as upside down risk. Maybe you're skewed one way, but the but the the potential in terms of impact to your portfolio is much more limited to the upside. Um, there's three sh- shifting forces that we think, and we've done a lot of work on this, we'll, we'll, that will push up rates in the fall. And that's treasury reserves at the Fed, QE, and, and then obviously heavier reliance on, on market funding. Pushing away from that on, on the positioning side, you know, we, we, we continue to shift duration down a, a bit during the course of the year, um, you know, from day to day, I wouldn't say day to day, but from week to week, we, we keep an eye on things in terms of macro developments. I would highlight that last week uh, on the other side of June 16th, uh, we were a little surprised at the unwinding of some of the positioning that we saw. Um, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, we, we again, we're being risk managers first. We, we might have made a small pivot and, and, and brought duration up just a little bit. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, the, the trend is clearly in play. Chappie, I'll pass it over to you. With this landscape where we have a fairly positive view of the macroeconomic outlay, we still think this is a good environment for yield in the portfolio. Now, we we want to be careful. Obviously, valuations are where they are. I think that's that's well known. So we want to be careful about where we're expressing that view and and how we think about that in terms of the portfolio. But I think this is a this is still an environment for for carry in the portfolio for yield in the portfolio. So you know. High yield exposure, for example, you know we've got about uh, a third of the portfolio in U.S. high yield corporate debt. But what what I would highlight as an example of kind of how we're approaching that, you know, when you look at spreads on average on the aggregate level, you know, of course they're basically at the tights. But when you kind of stratify that in terms of within high yield, you know, double Bs are still about 40 basis points off the pre-COVID tights. Single Bs, they're about 20 basis points. Triple Cs are basically at the tights. So, you know, our, our allocation for a combination of reasons, but that valuation factor is certainly playing as well. We're, you know, we've got a three to one ratio in terms of our double Bs versus our single Bs, triple Cs less than a percent. You know, one of the areas that we are also starting to rotate in a little bit, we've used extensively in the past, uh, has been uh, floating rate loans within the portfolio. We've got uh, a position there of about one and a half percent. You know, this ties into a bit of the, the valuation story, but also a bit of the, the rising rate story. It's a little early 
historically relative to when loans would really perform. Uh, but we think we can start to put some positioning in there. Uh, we think there's some attractive opportunities there. We're going to start to allocate that. Um, and other areas of, of risk selectively within emerging markets. That's, you know, an area where we think, again, you got to pick your spots. You know, you got to be very careful about idiosyncratic risk for the areas that you express. But we generally as a team historically have and continue to do pick uh, more fundamental improvement stories, uh, positions where we can f- have a better sense of liquidity. Uh, so we're selectively expressing some views there. So, you know, I think within the portfolio, we're, you know, it's about embracing some risk here in this environment with a positive uh, economic landscape, uh, but, you know, being being careful and selective about how you express that. Always on top of mind of our investors, especially with uh, those that are investing in your portfolio, um, is, is your view on currency, you know, specifically because when you're managing so many different portfolios, you're managing portfolio for Canada, you put your Canadian dollar currency hat on and perhaps you can express uh, your current views on Canadian dollar and, and how you're hedged. Let me start with a macro comment on foreign exchange. You know, largely FX is defined by two things, pace and speed. And if you go back to last month, the Canadian dollar appreciated about 5% right after the Bank of Canada did the small taper. We felt that was a bit egregious uh, in terms of that pace and speed. Uh, so down uh, around to 120 and a half, closer to 120 um, we opened up some exposure and took some of our Canadian dollar hedge off uh, to the tune of about 20% or so. Again, let me let me make sure that we're clear on this. It was more of a tactical play based on pace, uh, pace and speed. Um, this Just this past week, as, as Dollar Canada ran back up to 124, uh, again, you know, we had a tactical view. Uh, we, we, we still think the Canadian dollar strengthens over time, but we put the hedge back on uh, 100%. Uh, by the end of the year, we, we we do think we're targeting around 117 or 115 in the Canadian dollar, uh, meaning Canada Canadian dollar strength, dollar weakness. Uh, we think that that secular downtrend with regards to the dollar is very well intact. Uh, we think that's a three to five year development. Uh, and again, we will be tactical. It is one of the uniqueness uh, unique things that we have within the strategy is we can pull that FX lever when we want to. Uh, so then, you know, when we do see opportunities where maybe it's come too far too fast. We'll react to that. But uh, again, secular downtrend and in, in, in terms of dollar weakness still very much in play from our perspective. This has been a great conversation. I think very insightful in terms of how to think in the environment and what we're doing. What would be your, your final thoughts to fixed income investors given where we are and where you think we're headed over the course of the next, say, six to 12 months? Don't be penny wise and pound foolish. I think rates are going to head higher. Uh, it is a trend that is starting to develop. Things are getting better globally, uh, starting here in the U.S., but it won't stop in the U.S. And I think rates are going to continue to head up from a global perspective. So don't be penny wise and pound foolish and and, and have this sort of perception that, you know, I'll, I'll wait. We'll see. Take a take a, a wait and see approach, because as you mentioned earlier, that's that's when un- unfortunate uh, timing happens and it, and it affects your performance. Yeah, or as another colleague says, don't don't pick up nickels in front of a steamroller. Um, Chris, any final thoughts on your end? You know, that interest rate risk is going to be the paramount risk to be protective against. I think we're going to be looking at a global landscape that still provides a lot of opportunities. So I think it's it's that flexibility to to sort of broaden, if you will, to be able to fish in a in as many ponds as you can and uh, to find all those different areas because there, there are still opportunities even f- even in a rising interest rate environment for fixed income there's you know there's ways you can manage fixed income assets in that type of environment and still be successful even though that you know the textbook would tell you that's going to be a you know an uphill battle there there's there's ways you can diversify the portfolio you can express positions through 
currencies, et cetera. There's a lot of tools in the toolkit that you can still have a fixed income piece of your portfolio because you are, you know, as an investor, even in a rising rate environment, you know, I think that the investor wants to have that uh, diversified portfolio. There is a need still for fixed income assets within that portfolio. And I'd say, gentlemen, you've done a fantastic job of doing that, of navigating the changing interest rate cycles over the course of the last 15 years in Canada, um, longer in the United States. You've been very successful on that front, um, adding a lot of value to our investors. I want to thank you for for doing so on behalf of everyone you know, with respect to the Manulife Strategic Income Fund. Um, and I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure having you both on here, get, hearing your perspectives and gaining some insight. Because as I said at the onset, the, this is the raging debate. And I think this is the area that is going to define success in portfolios or failures in portfolios in terms of how you manage your fixed income through this year and through next year. It's, it's of utmost importance. And I think you guys have nailed it um, and done a great, very, very good job you know, for your clients in that regard. So on behalf of Kevin Hedlund, I want to thank you for joining us on Investments Unplugged. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.